We're finishing up a series today that's been on family vacations. But before I get to that, I want to do something else. Uh, we'll get there just in a few moments. So about, oh, I don't know, three weeks ago, something like that, I, at the end of the service, I asked for you to pray uh, for Terry and Amy Ruff. They uh, used to be on our staff here, and they are serving on the mission field in Ghana. And I told you that Terry had some uh, serious health issues, and they were coming back to the States. And I'm assuming you prayed. I know a lot of people were praying. Terry and Amy, would you stand, please, so that we can say welcome home. They are headed back to Ghana fairly soon because Terry got a clean bill of health. So thank you for praying. Uh, we we uh, love you both dearly. Thankful for the answers to prayer. Um, glad you're doing what you're doing. Uh, we admire you and uh, we'll keep you in our prayers. Well, you know, this, this whole series has been uh, based on family vacations during the summer. And where in the world, if you were living in biblical times, might you go on a vacation trip? And we've talked about different kinds of things, deep sea fishing and down to the riverside and different things of that nature. This morning, we're going to end up by a trip to the zoo. If you lived in Bible times, you might have taken a trip to the zoo. Genesis chapter 6. Our family took a vacation at the end of May, and uh, Elsie and I and our daughters and sons-in-law and the grandkids, we spent a week together in Wisconsin. On one of the days, we decided we were going to drive down to the Milwaukee Zoo. The grandkids would really enjoy that, and it was about a 30-minute drive from where we were staying, and I got out my AAA maps. I'd studied it very well, knew what was going on, so we got in the car, took off. However, I had misread the map. I missed an important turn off the interstate, and we ended up in the state of Wyoming. Um, <laughs> it wasn't really Wyoming. It just felt like we had gone that far. Um, I, was, I was really frustrated. I was, I was embarrassed. This is not usually how I do things. I'm usually fairly good with directions from that standpoint. And I don't know, but I was leading that day. Uh, and uh, my family was following me. They were very gracious to me. And I know what was going on in the conversations of their car. Dad knows where he's going. And then, does dad know where he's going? <laughs> and then, dad has no idea where he's going. <laughs> so finally, we get a call from, from one of the, the kids. And I had messed up. If I had, they had their GPSs on their phones on. I did not. Had I had mine on, none of this problem would have transpired. We got to the zoo. We had a great day, but it was an important lesson for me to learn. <laughs> One they're not going to soon let me forget, by the way, and rightly so. <laughs> but I've learned how to use my phone GPS effectively since. I've been using it all the time since then because I don't want to get lost again. By the way, it's been wrong twice, so there. By the time we reach the sixth chapter of Genesis, the world's inhabitants have misread God's map, God's instructions. They have taken a wrong turn, and they have ended up far from where they were intended to be. They weren't headed to the zoo. The world had become a spiritual zoo by participating in everything from A to Z except for what was right. It broke God's heart, and God decided it was time for him to intervene. And this is how the story begins in chapter 6 of Genesis, verse 5. 
The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I've created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, did you take notice of that description of the human heart, that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time? What a description. I like the way the message translates that verse. It says, God saw that human evil was way out of control. People thought evil, imagined evil, 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 evil from morning to night. You get the picture of what it was like? Now, I know things are bad today. I, I think things are getting worse. And I care deeply about the culture and the world that my grandchildren will inherit from my generation. But I got to tell you, I don't think it's as bad today as it was in the day of Noah. There are good people. I look around this room this morning, I see good people who are trying to do the right thing. I think the majority of people want to help be good neighbors, that they want to make a difference in this world, that they want to do what is right. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have problems. It doesn't mean that we don't have issues that cry out for a solution. It just means that what we're experiencing today is nothing new. The world has been struggling with the power of evil since the very beginning. And we will continue to struggle with the power of evil until the very end. The world has been and is still filled with evil from morning till night. So when you get discouraged and you get disheartened, read this story again because it will remind you that God is a God of second chances and grace. And we'll get there in just a little while. But it would seem, as we read this passage, that God had two options. Option number one was to ditch the original creation plan forever. Or number two, do a reboot. And I'm really glad that God chose to do a reboot. All of us should be glad of that. We're here this morning. But the question oftentimes comes up to me, well, if God knew humans were going to do this, why would he create us in the first place? Why do you even start this experiment? Okay, I think the best basis for the answer to that question comes in this phrase from the scriptures when the Bible tells us that God is love. God is a relational God. He is, he is the embodiment of love. And love demands someone to love. And so this grand experiment of this creation where God created us as the crown of his creation was an expression of his love. And so God could have made us puppets. But I'm here to tell you that between the puppet master and the puppet, there is no such thing as love. For love to operate, there must be the choice on the other end to return the love or to reject the love. And so for God to have a relationship with us, he had to give us the choice. Now, we, that, that's not a complete answer. I know that's not a complete But that's the basis of why he did what he did. And, and here's what I also want you to realize, and that is we will not be able to grasp all of the if, uh, ifs and ands and questions about this whole ordeal. But I'm here to tell you this morning, let God be God, all right? I cannot impose my finite understanding on an infinite God. Someday we'll get the, 
the whole story. Someday we'll get all of our answers. And it seems, according to our text, that, that only one man was reasonably qualified to be God's partner in this reboot of creation. Now, I, I don't want you to miss this important point. God was not obligated to start over. And he certainly wasn't obligated to start over with Noah and his family. God could have accomplished it all by himself, but that's not God's way. God always partners with us. He's always asking us to join with him in the plan of the ages. When God finished his creation, he declared it was very good. So the creation wasn't the problem. It was man, humanity's sinful indulgence. But despite humanity's failure, God wanted to start over with another human family. Isn't that terrific? Now, now I, before I go any farther into this story, I think you need to understand uh, a couple of things. Because I know, I, I know what some of you are thinking this morning. Oh, that's great. He's ending this series with a kid's story. What am I going to learn from a kid's story that will help impact my life? Well, you need to know what I believe about the story. First of all, I believe the story is true. I believe it is factual, historical, and I believe it's inspired. The New Testament, I'll tell you why. At least some of the reasons why. I don't have time to go into all of them, but I'll give you the highlights. The New Testament writers re reference Noah, the ark, and the flood as truth. The most succinct reference that we have comes from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. It says, By faith Noah, when he was warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. That's not all. Peter, in his first letter to the church, in chapter 3, uses the flood and Noah as an act of obedience which illustrates our obedience in Christian baptism. In 2 Peter, in chapter 2, he talks about God providing for Noah's family. And in chapter 3, he uses the flood and its destruction of the world as an example of the fact that God is going to destroy the world again at the end of time, this time with fire. Luke, in his gospel, includes Noah in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Wouldn't do too well, I don't think, to have a fictional character in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Do you? But you take all that out of the Bible, there's one convincing proof to me, and that is that Jesus believed the story and referenced Noah as a real person, the ark as a real building construction project, and the flood as a real event. In Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus is talking about the end, he says this, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. And that is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, if Jesus believed the story to be true, if he told it as truth, then that answers for me the whole dilemma. And here's why. Because if we conclude that the story of Noah and the flood is a fictional story, then there's a chain reaction like falling dominoes. If it's not true, then Jesus told a lie. And if Jesus lied here, then everything else he said is suspect. Worse yet, if Jesus lied just this once, it disqualifies him to be our Savior and Lord, which means we're wasting our time here today. We are a people without any hope. Do, do you understand how important this story is? When you ask the question, what does it have to do with me? Should I even believe this story? Oh, absolutely. 
Because what it teaches us is the truth about God through the ages. Now, when we start into the story, you need to understand, and I need to understand, what it communicated to the original hearers or the original readers. Moses is the one that penned the first five books of the uh, Old Testament, the books of law, and so the freed Egyptian slaves would be the first recipients of the book of Genesis here. Now, here's, here's the picture. They've been there for 400 years. They are steeped in Egyptian theology, ideology, myths, and all kinds of things. Do you know the Egyptians had a flood story? In their flood story, two frogs survive on a raft, and when they finally reach dry ground, the frogs repopulate the whole world. Pretty bizarre. But it's a flood story. And the Hebrew people have been living that with that for 400 years, and so God comes along through Moses, and he says, okay, I know you know the stories. Let me tell you the real story. Let me give you the true story. I want to set the record straight. By the way, do you know that archaeologists can confirm for us that at least 268, <clears throat> excuse me, flood legends from various ancient cultures and civilization have been discovered? The most intriguing to me is the Gilgamesh epic, which was found on clay tablets, and it's believed that these are the oldest form of communication that we have yet to discover in archaeology. Archaeology. They describe a worldwide global flood that was due to humanity's wickedness. There's a selections of animals and people saved on the boat. Both a raven and a dove were sent out of the boat. And the promise then was to the world that God would never again destroy the world in that manner again. Now, most of the stories aren't nearly so aligned with the Gilgamesh epic, but they, they do have a flood story. Now, some of you are going to say, well, doesn't that make the Bible story even more suspect? What? No, folks, to the contrary. The very fact that most cultures have a cataclysmic flood story is evidence of its reality. I mean, how do we account for such a permeating story if nothing like it ever happened? And if it happened like the Bible says it happened, then all these stories would have trickled down through the different family groups and tribes and nations, all from Noah. And such a story would be something that you would tell for generations after generations. Global flood stories were found in the Arapaho and Algonquin, Algonquin tribes of North America. The flood story has been found in Mexico, Brazil, New Guinea, Africa, and even the Aborigines of Australia. None cont contain the plausibility or the accuracy of the scriptural account. Do you know that the story of the flood in the Old Testament is the most precisely recorded year in the Bible? God is saying to his people, I want you to have the truth. Here's the way it really happened. And it's up to us to take God at his word, the one who was there. Let me see if I can illustrate this way. Today you can read a whole lot of things about the Holocaust that happened during World War II. You can even read a lot of places anymore where it never happened. It was all made up. It was fabricated. And the debate goes back and forth. But once you meet a survivor of the death camps, tattooed with an old prison number, and hear his or her story firsthand, none of the rest of the stories matter. When you talk to somebody who was there, who saw it, felt it, lived it face to face. It answers all the dilemma. God is saying to his people, I was there. I know the story. Let me tell you. 
Now, I don't know if any of you have been over to the Ark Encounter yet over in Kentucky. Elsie and I haven't been there yet. We want to go. We've been to the Creation Museum a couple times in the past, which is, you know, they, they did that very well. I, I'm excited to see this. This is a life-size Ark built to the dimensions of Noah's Ark. And so they're trying to teach people, yes, it could have happened. It was feasible. The, the construction methods of the Ark were known in that day and time and so forth and so on. But people often ask, well, is it even feasible to think that they could build something that big or that it would float? Studies have shown that the proportion of the ark are some of the most is, is one of the most stable proportions for a ship on, on the seas even today. It is my understanding that, that, that the big oar boats that are on the Great Lakes are often fashioned with the same proportions. Now the dimensions of Nova's Ark were 450 feet long. They were 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. That's three stories with 15 feet to each story. Now to give you a little bit of perspective of the size of this boat, okay? here this morning. If you start back here at this black curtain, which is just right behind where those blue horizontal lights are, and you go all the way out to the middle of our playground on the east end of the building, that's about 450 feet long. That's the length of the ark. If you go from the end of this pew over here to the end of this pew over here and just bump it out a little bit farther, that's 75 feet. And if you go to the tallest peak from the floor to the tallest peak of the worship center and you'd push it up another seven feet, that would be the height of the ark. Pretty good size boat. And you say, yes, but could it have held all the animals? Well, when you remove the creatures from the list that would have survived in the water, which is the majority of creation, the list contains about 35,000 animal species, or two by two, roughly 70,000 animals. The average, size of most, the average size of most land animals is that of a sheep. And since 240 sheep fit comfortably in an average-sized double-deck railroad car, and since the volume of the ark would have been equal to 569 such railroad cars, calculations estimate that the animals would have only taken up 50% of the ark's capacity, leaving the other 50% for food, water, and the habitation places for Noah and his family. And you say, yeah, but what about elephants and, and, and hippopotamuses and rhinoceroses or rhinoceri or whatever the plural of that <laughs> creature is? I mean, those, those, are big, those are big dudes. The Bible doesn't say they were full adults. They could very well have been young. Very, very young. Which would make actually more sense if you're going to be on the ark for a year and then you're going to have the responsibility of repopulating the earth. What about fierce beasts? There's nothing said that Noah didn't have cages. Or maybe God made them hibernate for the entire time they were on the ark, which is just maybe a little bit longer than what they are used to hibernating. We, we don't have answers to that, but all of that is plausible. After all, they took seven of every clean animal, some of which were used for worship sacrifices after the ark, some of which may have been used for food for the carnivores on the ark. Yeah, but how could Noah have gathered all these animals if he was indeed building an ark? He didn't. God supernaturally brought the animals to the ark. Oh, come on. Really? Yeah, I don't have any problem with that. If God can do all, I mean, if, if there's periods of hibernation, if God could do, let me ask you this. If you have a problem with God supernaturally bringing the animals to the ark, then, then explain to me how the monarch butterfly in the fall of the year will leave this area of the Midwest and will fly to Mexico and, and when it's springtime will return. And by the way, it's not the same monarch. It's the fourth generation that returns. How does a butterfly do that? 
Or if that's not good enough, how about the Arctic turn that leaves the Arctic regions from the summertime, flies all the way to the Antarctic and back every season. It's a 46,000 mile round trip. Arctic terns are known to live as much as 30 years, which means in a lifetime, an Arctic turn will have traveled 1.5 million miles or the equivalent of three round trips to the moon. Not bad for a bird with a two foot wingspan. You tell me how it does that. If the butterfly, fourth generation, can make it back to Indiana, if the Arctic turn can spend its life with 1.5 million miles of flight, then I think God could have gotten the animals to the ark. By the way, you watch your own pet. They'll know a storm is coming long before you do. God has built within them great instincts. I, I wish I could go on. There's so much more convincing evidence to explore. For instance, how the current global population curve matches up closely to the biblical timeline of a global flood. Or the shift of the tectonic plates and the continental drift theory and, and more. And what about, what about shifting topography? People say, well, there's not enough water to cover the, the global earth. Well, we don't know what the world was like at that day and time. I can tell you this. If you flatten the mountains and if you raise the, the depths of the ocean so that everything is leveled, there is enough water to cover the land 1.7 miles deep. I, I don't know what the land was like back then, but I, I do believe there's been some topographical shifts in the earth since the time of the flood. For instance... The top 3,000 feet of Mount Everest from 26,000 to 29,000 is made up of sedimentary rock which contains seashells and fossilized closed clamshells. You only get closed clamshells when you have a cataclysmic instantaneous kind of an event. Now you tell me. How do seashells and closed clamshells make it to the top of the tallest mountain of the world? Unless the topography of this world shifted during the great flood. Oh, there's so much more. I could go on, but I won't. Okay? <laughs> I could see the fear in your eyes when I said I could go on. <laughs> but there's more to this story than just the story and its truthfulness. That there is power in this story because it has lessons for us in our, on our everyday lives. And I just want to leave you with a couple things that come out of this story. Here's the first one. Decisions have consequences. That's what prompted the flood to begin with. Poor choices. Decisions always have had consequences. They always will have consequences. I have really enjoyed the Olympics. Sad to see it come to a close. The U.S. has done terrific. Many of the countries have done terrific. All the athletes have done terrific. I just stand amazed at their expertise. But there is a dark cloud, unfortunately, over part of the men's swimming team for fabricating a story to help cover poor decisions. I don't know what it means for them, but I can pretty much guarantee that the potential they might have had, they won't have because of the choices they made. Do, do not miss this point. Decisions and choices always have consequences. Now, it, it, uh, I, I want to say that I am so excited to have our college students back with us. Um, if, if you're back uh, from your summer and you're getting settled in, man, are we glad to have you back. We really miss you when you're gone. It, it is, it's thrilling to have you home.
And some of you, I'm assuming, may be new to IU. This is your freshman year. You're new to Ivy Tech. Maybe you're just new to our congregation, and we're really thrilled to death to have you here. But if you, if this, if you are a freshman, like, may I share something with you? you? This is your first way, time perhaps away from home. You're, you're now on your own. You're away from family and friends and everything else. And, and I remember, it's been a long time ago, but I remember the excitement of leaving home and starting my college career. Can I remind you? Can I remind you? Choices have consequences. There will be new temptations that you will face that you have not faced before. Peer pressure will be ratcheted up a few notches. Make wise choices. Some things cannot be undone no matter how much you regret it. And know that you have a spiritual family here who will come around you, who come alongside of you, who will help prop you up, who will be what we can for you if you'll let us be that for, for you. So, just don't forget, this whole story begins because the world made choices that carried deep consequences. Here's the second thing. Be faithful to God regardless. Noah did what was right. He was above reproach in his behavior. He was committed to God despite the fact that nobody else seemed to be. Now, that's not easy to do. And it, I know it's easy to look around at where we are today and say, oh, why do I bother? You know, uh, my friends, they don't believe what I believe. I, at, at work, they don't believe what I believe. You know, I might as well just throw in the spiritual towel and just go along with the rest of the world. It would sure be a lot easier. Don't do that. Don't lose heart. Be faithful to God regardless. Now, it, just let me remind you, today, all right, last night down at uh, Bedford, uh, today on this side of town, on the west side of town, there'll be probably 3,000 or more folks who are here that believe much of what you believe, that we share the same common faith. 3,000 people, that's just us. Then encounter all the other faithful Christians and all the other churches who are doing great things. That's just us. You don't walk out of here and live your life alone. You've got other people who are coming alongside of you who are saying, don't lose heart, stay the faith, stay the course, be faithful to God. Noah didn't have any of that. And yet Noah was faithful to the very end. Now, if Noah can do it alone, what's our excuse for doing it together? Which brings me to this reminder. If you're not in a life group, you need to be in a life group. Because this is where the family really comes around each other to support us. Nothing thrills me like hearing a story from somebody in a life group when, they, when they, maybe they've had a sickness, maybe they've had a tragedy, and, and then they'll tell me, but my life group was the first group there, or they brought food in, or they got together and we prayed together, and you can just see the support and the encouragement. That's why God gave us his family. So, don't act apologetic for your faith when you get teased. Don't whine when you face ridicule. Don't feel sorry for yourself because the rest of the world is going down a different road than you are. And don't overreact to the broken world around you. Just be faithful. Be charming. Be winsome. But be consistent about your faith. Don't do the other stuff that we're so often tempted to do. This is one of my favorite quotes. Don Hutchison wrote, he said, Jesus said to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, not vicious as snakes and stupid as pigeons. <laughs> Good advice. You stay the course. Noah surely received ridicule as he built this monstrosity near his home, but he kept right on building. You do the same. Here's the third thing. Be an individual of character. Noah was not a biblical superhero. He was not a goody two-shoes. He was an ordinary man who took an extraordinary task from an extraordinary God and did it to his best ability. Wasn't perfect. Noah got drunk after the first harvest following the flood. Wasn't perfect. But then none of us are. 
but we can be people of character. Character isn't dependent upon education, social standing, good looks, or lucky breaks. Character is a virtue that anyone in this room can and should develop. Character is a choice. Hey, folks, that's why I think his family stuck with him. Can you imagine what Noah's family must have thought when Noah said, uh, family, God has been talking to me, and God has told me to build a boat 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. We're going to fill it with animals and float away. His sons and family stayed with him. Why? Because I think he was a man of character. And when he said, God has given me a job to do, they said, okay, Dad, we're right with you. That's what character does. Last thing, be hopeful. Remember, God is a God of second chances. The text lays out the horrendous conditions of the world. But then it ends on this high note. But Noah found grace or favor in the eyes of the Lord. If ever a conjunction was filled with hope, it is in this passage. Oh, the world is terrible, but we fixate on the horrible loss in the story, but we forget the glorious grace. We fail to grasp the serious nature of sin and its destructive power, and we also forget the magnanimous nature of God. A holy and loving God is in no way obligated to put up with our sin, can't put up with our sin, but neither is he obligated to forgive us our sin, and yet that's exactly what he's done. No and his family got a second chance. Every one of us in this room has been afforded a second chance. This is the first time the word grace appears in the Bible. But from here on out, it becomes the overriding theme of the Bible. What a great contrast this story is. The world is only evil all the time. God is loving and gracious and forgiving all the time. What does grace look like? Looks like a rainbow after the storm. Every time I see a rainbow, I'm reminded of God's promise of grace. A rainbow reminds us that God is a God of second chances. Noah didn't need to visit a zoo. He lived on a floating one for over a year. And Noah didn't need a AAA map or a GPS for that matter. He had something far better, God's personal guidance and provision. And you know what, folks? God is still in the guiding and providing business. You too can find peace in the eyes of the Lord and grace and favor and strength. And you will, you will find, if you stay true to him, the end always comes out well. If you'll choose to walk with him, be faithful to him, maintain your character for him, and place your hope in him, you'll be victorious in the end. Just need to stay the course. Build your ark. Build it well. God has called us to an extraordinary job of sharing his word with a broken world. I don't know where it first came from. I want to close with this. Um, it is attributed to Anonymous who wrote a whole lot of stuff throughout history. But this is called, <laughs> All I Really Need to Know I Learned from Noah's Ark. You've probably seen it before, but it's a good, good way to end. Plan ahead. It wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. Don't listen to critics. Just do what needs to be done. Build on high ground. There will always be future storms in life. For safety's sake, travel in pairs. Two heads are better than one. Speed isn't always an advantage. The cheetahs were on board, but so were the snails. When you're stressed, float a while. Be kind to one another. We are in the same boat. Be on guard. The woodpeckers inside are often a bigger threat than the storm outside. 
Remember, amateurs built the ark and professionals built the Titanic. <laughs> if God is with you, there's always a rainbow on the other side. And for goodness sakes, for heaven's sake, don't miss the boat. And the only way you'll miss the boat is if you miss Jesus Christ. He is the door home. He is the way home. He is the truth that will get us home.